My name's Alistair Burt, and I'm a former minister for the Middle East. As such, and as a backbench MP for over three decades, I've taken a long interest in the Middle East peace process in various iterations and lived through a number of moments of significance, some recognised as such at the time and others only later. We're approaching one such moment already recognised as such, the potential for Israel to proceed with elements of the so-called Trump plan, most notably from July the 1st, the annexation of land currently designated by international laws occupied, although Israel disputes both terms. To discuss this, I've recorded for the Conservative Middle East Council in the last couple of weeks, a series of podcasts of around 40 minutes each, and I express my very warm thanks and appreciation to Hussam Zumlot, the head of the Palestinian mission to the UK, to Mark Regev, the outgoing ambassador of the State of Israel, Nikolai Mladnov, the UN Special Coordinator for the Peace Process, and Ian Black, journalist and author, most notably of Enemies and Neighbours, Arabs and Jews in Palestine and Israel, 1917 to 2017. I hope you agree this could not be a more informed group at such a time. All are long-standing friends, and my approach has been to let Hussan Zumlot and Mark Regev largely make their own case, Nikolai Mladenov to explain how he is approaching this particular moment, and then discuss all three with Ian Black. So thank you for joining us, and I hope you find the talks worth your time, which is much appreciated. Today, my uh, my guest is Mark Regev, the ambassador of the State of Israel. And um, I'm going to start, Mark, on the basis that many of the people listening to this podcast know about the uh, the situation affecting Israel over the years and will be very interested in it. So we don't need to go into all the history, which is extensive. Uh, and I'm really wanting to focus on the current issues affecting Middle East peace process, particularly after President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu's announcement in January. Uh, but let's start with something else. You and I have known each other for for many years uh, as friends, and I know that uh, uh, you you came to London after you know quite a long career in the uh, in in Israel and in foreign service. So, how did you get here, and how have you found being ambassador these past five years? Well, I came here by accident, Alistair. The <laughs> truth on. is, the truth is, I was never supposed to be a diplomat. I was doing a doctorate at Tel Aviv University in the nineteen eighties. And I'd finished all the coursework, and I'd got all the research together, and I had to actually sit down and write the dissertation. And I had this moment of crisis, which a lot of doctoral students have, and I wasn't excited, and I was bored, and I was stuck, and intellectually, I wasn't going anywhere. And exactly as that was happening, uh, there was an ad in the paper to take the entrance exam for the Israeli Foreign Service. So had I been a more successful academic, I would never have got to be in the Israeli Foreign Service and would never end up being ambassador here many years later. So it's it's all a matter of I got here because of previous failures. Life is full of all sorts of chances and things that, that, that crop up by accident. Uh, and, and it's nice to know it's been the same for you. Um, but coming to London, London is uh, presumably a very important posting for uh, for the state of Israel. Uh, and you've been here over five you know, very interesting years uh, for the United Kingdom uh, with our debates over Brexit. And of course, with much that's been happening in the Middle East, have you... Uh, how have you found the press and Parliament uh, in that time with their obvious interest in the Middle East and sometimes their biases one way or another? So obviously, the, the, the time I've been here, it's been a, can we say, a, it's not been routine business as usual in Britain. I mean, I arrived here in, I think it was the 1st of April, 16, and shortly after that, you had the referendum. 
And uh, I think the best thing is in the in the short time I've been here, we've had uh, three British prime ministers. Yes, I started here with David Cameron. A lot of most of my period here was obviously with Theresa May leading the government, and and now it's with Boris Johnson. And we've had a political volatility here. Uh, um, the elections uh, uh, and how Brexit affects Britain and how it affects British foreign policy and how it affects, if at all, policy on the Middle East. So it's been a, a volatile period, uh, uh, maybe a transformative period. And, and from the point of view of being a foreign diplomat based here in London, you couldn't have picked a more uh, uh, interesting time uh, to be here. Do you feel Israel has had a fair run from press and parliament in that time? I think, uh, I think if, if I'm totally frank. I think every country tends to look at the conflict between Israel and its neighbors through that country's own heritage and that country's own experience. Uh, the Irish tend to look at the Arab-Israel conflict uh, through the prism of uh, Ireland's historic conflict with, with the United Kingdom and their struggle for independence. And so they, you know, for them, you know, uh, the PLO is Sinn Féin and uh, the Israelis are the terrible English. The British tend to put their colonial legacy on the, our conflict with the Palestinians. And that, of course, if you, if you, and it's been in the news recently with all this uh, statues coming down and Black Lives Matter and so forth, if, if, if you take a sort of a colonial guilt and then you say Israel is the colonial side, then, of course, you, you automatically you have a negative approach to Israel. And I think that, unfortunately, is prevalent amongst many circles in this country. That's an interesting nuance. Uh, and uh, I, I'm very conscious of British history when I go around the region, and it is a, a mixed one. Uh, and it's essential, I think, sometimes to look at foreign policy through through those eyes and recognise that people will take an event and see it differently depending on where they're coming from. Uh, most people who will be listening to these podcasts know the history uh, between uh, Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, so I don't want to go back extensively. Um, so I want to concentrate on, on the more immediate. Could you set out what Israel's thinking was when President Trump announced as a first term president, which is unusual, he would work on there? Most, most of the time, as we know, it's something that has tended to be left by the United States, who have assumed the role of broker in this over many years. But a first term president decided he would he would take it on. What were Israel's thoughts can you recall when he decided to do that? Well, first of all, Alistair, will you allow me to correct you? Uh, of course. Uh, it's not always second-term presidents. Uh, Jimmy Carter, in his first term, put uh, Middle East peace at the very top of the agenda and, as you know, played a very pivotal role in, in architecting, bringing Begin and Sadat together for that uh, historic piece. And George Herbert Walker Bush, a one-term president, in his first term, uh, immediately following the Iraq War, he uh, organized the Madrid Conference uh, 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 and, once again, in his first term, devoted much energy and time to, to uh, Israel and our neighbors. And so I think it's incorrect to say that it is uh, not true, uh, that, that, that only in second terms do presidents tend to do these things. Okay, that's perfectly fair. It, it has been something where many presidents, when elected for a second, I have turned their attention to it. But I, I quite happily take the take the reproof. Nonetheless, uh, President Trump and then the the process he announced in relation to who would be handling it, uh, Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt. Uh, what did Israel make of that process and the the announcement? So obviously, he was trying to do something new, and he took people who didn't have a lot of expertise 
in the Middle East and put them in charge. Now, to be frank, the, the, the experts or the so-called experts in Middle East uh, 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 policy in, in the peace process uh, hadn't had much success. And quite possibly, you need to think outside the box to find solutions. And you took people who were very successful in, in the private sector, people who'd signed many deals, uh, real estate deals, other deals, billions of dollars, millions of dollars. And you say, with that level of expertise in getting deals, could they work and succeed where the, uh, the experts on the Middle East had failed? And I think, uh, to be fair, I think the Middle East experts, and we're all, you, me, we're in Middle East experts, uh, so are the other people on this panel, they know the issue backwards. Maybe we need a little less hubris and we need to say that maybe people with other areas of expertise have something to contribute. They weren't, of course, just real estate experts and the like, but there were connections with with what appeared to be one side of the argument uh, in Israel, particularly in relation to, to settlements. Was there any sense that this might weaken the, the independence of thought? Let's, let's compare it to the previous administration. I remember when uh, David Cameron's memoir came out uh, after he obviously ceased being prime minister, I went out and bought it. And there's one line David Cameron writes about the Obama administration, and he said that it was the most pro-Palestinian administration in, um, in U.S. history. His words, not mine. And so uh, uh, they tried very hard and couldn't get a deal. Obviously, Trump is, uh, I'm happy to say, yes, uh, more pro-Israel. Uh, he's, now his efforts are ongoing. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But the fact that he maybe is more sympathetic to Israel, so if Obama was more sympathetic to the Palestinians, and it's obviously it's not a problem of pro-Israel bias. Okay. Um, at a particular stage in the, in, in the process, I met uh, Jason Greenpatt on, on three occasions. I enjoyed my, uh, my engagement with him. But as you know, the Americans were, were very close on, on this in talking to people outside uh, the uh, outside Israel about what they were doing and everything else, but at some stage in the negotiations, um, the Palestinians were no longer involved. I think after the U.S. decisions on their embassy in Jerusalem and and the like, with the Palestinians not involved in the negotiation, what do you think that meant in terms of whether or not the negotiations were going to be seen as impartial going forward? Was the process weakened by the Palestinians pulling out? And in your view, do you think they should have done? I think they shouldn't have. I mean, it's probably not my job to give the Palestinian leadership advice, but I think they made a mistake. Look, it is disappointing that they're not part of the process. Disappointing, but unfortunately, as you know, not surprising. Uh, the Palestinians over the decades have often closed the door on political alternatives, and they haven't done, the Palestinian leadership hasn't done their own people a favor. If you go all the way back to the first British proposals for a, a compromise, uh, the Peel uh, in the mid 1930s, the Peel Commission proposals, accepted in principle by the uh, Zionist side, by the Jewish side, uh, rejected outright by the uh, Palestinian nationalists. Uh, the UN proposals of 1947, two states for two peoples, once again accepted by my side, rejected by their side. Fast forward, uh, after the Six-Day War, uh, 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 the three no's of Khartoum, no recognition, no negotiations, no peace, embraced by the Palestinian leadership. Camp David with Barak. Uh, the Olmert Initiative, even under Obama, the Kerry effort to get peace, you find the Palestinian side, unfortunately, and regrettably for them, first and foremost, for their people, has closed the doors to diplomatic initiatives. 
It, it would seem from the uh, reaction that there has been to the proposals announced by President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu in January that we're in uh, a position where you would obviously argue the same uh, in that the Palestinians have said no to the proposals that have uh, been outlined. But so it seemed did almost everyone else. Uh, and the proposals uh, seem to have the support of Israel and the United States. But but precious few others. And uh, the the particular concern has become recently around the prospect of uh, so-called annexation. And I wanted you to explain uh, to us, uh, what do you think uh, were the key points of President Trump's uh, announcement with with Prime Minister Netanyahu in the deal? And in particular, could you explain to us how you think the proposals on annexation work to benefit both Israel and the Palestinians? There's a lot in what you've asked, and, and I'll start at the beginning. If I, if I leave out a point, you will come back to me and say, Mark, you forgot to relate to that part. Uh, the first part... I will, don't worry. The, the first part, you said um, the plan was widely rejected. When the plan was launched, there weren't just Israelis in the room with the Americans. There were representatives of three Arab governments, uh, the Emirates, Bahrain, and Oman, uh, and they were part of the official launch. Uh, in the days immediately following that, there were a number of Arab countries, important Arab countries, that welcomed the American initiative, as did the UK government. Now, none of them, including Israel, didn't say, oh, yes, we're signing on the bottom line. It was not presented as a fait accompli. It was not, it was not presented as a deal, and here you just have to sign. It was, the Americans said, these are concepts. These are ideas, and Israel welcomed them and has accepted them as a basis for talks. And as, as you know, uh, uh, in the days immediately following, many Arab countries also welcomed uh, the initiative without endorsing any of the specifics. Israel also hasn't endorsed any of the specifics. We've said we accept this as a basis for talks. Now, the, Ameri- uh, the Palestinian side took a different approach. They rejected it outright. Uh, to be fair, they rejected it even before it was launched. And as I said, that is disappointing, but consistent with longstanding Palestinian diplomatic behavior. And I think they're doing their own people a disservice. No one's asking them to sign on the bottom line. No one is asking them to accept all the things in the American initiative. Uh, as you know, in Israel, there's a whole debate about some aspects of the American initiative, which some people find very problematic. But we've accepted it as a basis for talks. And I'd ask the Palestinians, how do they expect to solve anything if they continue to refuse to negotiate? You'll be aware that since the, the time of the launch, uh, those states, as part of the Arab League, have rather hardened their opposition to the, the proposals. Uh, and also, it's become clear that annexation as part of the process appears to be something of a Rubicon. Um, uh, and I, I wouldn't dispute for a moment that what the Americans set out was seen to be part of a process. But what has become focused on, the possibility of annexation, which will be legal under Israeli law from July the 1st, appears to have very much focused people's attention in the sense that if this happens, it is very difficult to carry on with the process. So could I go back to my question, as you've invited me to do, what benefit does Israel see to the process of annexation that has been announced, both to the Palestinian side and to Israel? Very quickly, what you said about the Arab League is, of course, correct. But we know that uh, Arab League multilateral Arab diplomacy tends to work on lowest common denominator. 
And if I'm not mistaken, the Arab League opposed the peace between Israel and Egypt. The Arab League opposed the peace between Israel and Jordan. The Arab League, because you've got to find consensus positions uh, that everyone can agree to, uh, traditionally, the Arab League has not been out there uh, in a very energetic way supporting uh, this sort of thing. So it's not surprising that the Arab League, what I said, which was true, of course, is that you had specific Arab states welcoming the initiative, and, and, and that is true. Uh, on to the issue that you, you use the word annexation. Israel does not use the word annexation. We, we talk about uh, uh, the idea of extending Israeli sovereignty to territories. Why don't we use the word annexation? Because the word annexation means you are taking over someone else's territory. And legally, historically, this is not the case. Israel has a legitimate claim to the West Bank. We don't deny that other people have a claim too. Uh, and of course, we're willing to solve issues like that in, in negotiations. But to, to say that Israel is a foreign occupier on the West Bank, we don't accept it. it. It's not legal. It's not historic. It ignores that Israel has a legitimate claim. I mean, if you believe that Israel is illegally occupying the West Bank, you also think that the, the, the you know, Jerusalem is illegally occupied, which stands in the face of history. Is the, the Western Wall Israeli-occupied territory? Um, uh, the Jews who lived in the West Bank uh, before, before 67, uh, there's a Jewish community in Hebron that had been there for centuries. Uh, they were thrown out uh, during the mandate uh, as a response to Palestinian violence, murder. Uh, uh, to say the Jews have no right to live in Hebron, I think that's a very difficult legal argument to make. And so I would, I would, I would not use the word annexation. This is not territory that Israel does not have a legitimate claim to. Once again, we understand that there are other people who, who, who have claims and we're willing to resolve these disputes and negotiations. But the, I don't accept the use of the word annexation. I know it is widely used, but I don't think it stands up to logical criticism. Uh, you, you're perfectly correct to say that Israel's view of the land has always been consistent um, and that uh, others don't accept that. If we leave that argument to one side for a second, the physical act of uh, taking more control of elements of the Jordan Valley and of uh, extending Israeli sovereignty to settlements that are in the uh, uh, in the area which is being considered for uh, for that purpose by by the plan. Again, I go back. What is the practical benefit of that, both to Israel and to Palestinians? So uh, Israel has long said, all Israeli governments. Has long said that the 67 borders were, were, were not borders of peace and they weren't borders that we could defend ourselves in an in a, in a, in a, in a effective way. Uh, uh, you know that the borders from 1949 to 67 were the borders of conflict. And Israeli governments have always said that uh, peace has to be based on security and there have to be changes to the borders. And Israel's entitled to borders that we can defend our country with. And this has been a long-standing Israeli position. Israelis across the political spectrum have, have said that in final status peace, we're not going back to the 1967 lines. No Israeli government has ever agreed to go back to the 1967 lines. Uh, uh, so that's the premise. The importance of the Jordan Valley is clear. Uh, that's that crucially uh, uh, strategic strip of land that runs parallel to and west of the Jordan River. And uh, the idea that that should stay part of Israel goes back to the Labour governments of, uh, uh, of Golda Meir, uh, where uh, the Alon plan was developed, uh, which talked about these areas staying part of Israel in any final status reality. That sort of Labour position 
was uh, articulated very strongly by uh, Yitzhak Rabin, uh, who was uh, speaking in the Knesset. It, it was his last speak in the Knesset before he was murdered by a despicable and hateful Jewish extremist. Uh, uh, but he was speaking in the Knesset. It was in October 95, as I say, just weeks before he was murdered. Uh, and he laid out his vision of what a final status reality with the Palestinians looked like. And he specifically said that uh, that the Jordan Valley must be under Israeli control. He said that very, very strongly. Now, if Rabin, who was, as you know, the architect of the Oslo process, he understood that you couldn't have peace without it being anchored in security arrangements that are real, that are effective, that are genuine, that can stand the test of time. He believed peace with the Palestinians, reconciliation. And once again, he had, you know, serious on these issues. He was the Israeli leader who signed the Oslo Accords. If he believed that the Jordan Valley could stay inside Israel in the framework of peace with the Palestinians, I think, I think that's a, uh, you should at least challenge the assumption that when the Palestinians say, oh, this makes peace impossible. Rabin didn't think it made peace impossible. It, it seems to be clear that despite the explanation that Israel gives in relation to this action, it, it hasn't convinced uh, a lot of people. And it's not just been those who have traditionally taken uh, a Palestinian cause. Um, Mick Davis, the uh, chair of the Jewish Leadership Council, put in a, a quite powerful piece in, in Jewish news, uh, worrying about the impact of the decision if it was carried through uh, on Israel. How have you been able to cope domestically with that sort of concern and to try and change the perception in the way that you would obviously seek to do? Obviously, in Israel, you have a democracy and people have different approaches. Uh, as you know, uh, politics in Israel is, is sometimes seen as a contact sport, yes? We, we had three elections in the last 12 months, yes? A very vibrant democracy. And you have people with different yeah. opinions. And, and you have a reflection of those different opinions in, in amongst diaspora Jewish communities. Uh, you have some people in the diaspora uh, who are very strong supporters of the Israeli left, other people who are supporters of the Israeli right, and everything in between. That's only natural. Uh, uh, that's that's uh, the normal situation. It couldn't be any other way. I think it's only in North Korea that everyone thinks the same. That's uh, that's perfectly correct, and you're, you're right about the vibrancy of Israeli politics. That's been evident to someone who's observed it over over decades, and that, that's quite correct. But uh, apart from that reaction, there's something very specific. The relationship that Israel has been able to forge over the years with Egypt and Jordan particularly, who went out of the way uh, many years ago to create a peace agreement with, uh, with Israel, which has been of huge benefit to peace and security in the region. Both those states have uh, uh, have raised concerns about this. If the perception of what Israel is trying to do through the deal is not working, is there a risk with carrying on with it? And what is Israel making of those concerns expressed by Egypt and particularly Jordan, who has such intense interest in in the uh, in the West Bank and not least, of course, Jerusalem? So you're 100 percent correct. Those relationships we have with our two Arab peace partners. Uh, with Egypt and with Jordan are crucial for Israel. They are cornerstones of our national security. And we, are, we, are, we have an interest in, in cultivating those relationships to, to cementing the peace even further, to cultivating it to, to new areas of cooperation. And I'll answer your, your larger question the, the following way. We've seen, as you know, 
uh, over the last decade, especially over the last half decade, it's been energized, a process of Israel's contacts with the Arab world just going stronger from, from, from week to week. Uh, today, Israel talks to more Arab countries than ever before in the history of the Jewish state. Uh, we have uh, different levels of communication with a majority of Arab League members. Uh, some of them, it's more open, the open, and some of them, it's more discreet. But Arab countries that traditionally were hostile to Israel or, 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 or were very standoffish towards Israel today are, are seeing Israel increasingly as, as a partner and as a, an ally even. And this is very exciting for Israelis because, as you know, for many years we were ostracized in the region. And today we're finding, you know, when we look for friends, if in the past we had to look for into to Britain, Europe, North America, today we have friends and allies in the region. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's revolutionary. Now, I'm going to answer your question. By, by stating what people don't think about much. This amazing uh, movement, positive movement between Israel and the Arab world has, has happened in, in the last five, ten years under an Israeli government that was actually quite hawkish, an Israeli government that actually stood very strongly for Israeli national rights and for Israeli security. Now, are you telling me, uh, is this coincidental? Or is maybe uh, some of the preconceived ideas that some people have in the West, maybe they are less relevant in the Middle East? The argument is raised that this process you've described is being put at risk uh, by this particular policy and proposal, that all that you've said rings absolutely true with those who have studied the region. But it is very clear that some of those states have been saying now that that relationship may be put at risk. Is is normalization more important to Israel than annexation? In any policy uh, discussion, one has to evaluate all the challenges and all the opportunities. Governments must do so. And it, it's important that when decisions are made that you do it uh, in a measured way and you look critically at the both, as I say, the challenges, the downs, and the ups, the opportunities. So if Israel has an opportunity to cement uh, secure borders, which has been a long-term Israeli goal. So we have to look at the opportunities. Then we have to look at the same time at the challenges. And I think we can calibrate that. And we will we'll move ahead in this process, as I say, in a very measured way, in a way where we're engaging with friends and allies, first and foremost, the United States of America, which is our most important uh, friend and ally. We, like Britain, we have a very special relationship with, with Washington. And, and of course, we'll be talking uh, to other friends, including the United Kingdom, and of course our, our friends in the region. But one has to, one can look at the challenges, but one also has to look at the opportunities. One cannot only look at the challenges, one has to balance between the two. Um, I, put to the, uh, I, I, I put to the Palestinian representative the what happens next, in that uh, if, if annexation is halted or stops, that can't be an end of, uh, uh, of the process, because the status quo is inherently uh, un unstable. Everyone wants to see a resolution to this. That is why so many people have been involved. And that's why it so matters to everybody in, in the region, not least to the security of, of those in, in, the, uh, in, in Palestine and in, the, uh, and in Israel. If, if Israel was to say, all right, we won't go ahead with annexation. We've listened to other people. We don't agree with you, but we are prepared to stop. What would you then expect from those who had mounted a campaign to stop annexation to, to happen next, because it, it won't be sufficient just to say, right, well, we won't do it, because then what do you do next? What would Israel expect to do next? And what does Israel expect of others who have launched the campaign to say, 
stop the annexation, stop the Trump plan. So I'm not uh, not sure I can have this conversation because you're asking me to go in a place that I'm not going to to go. Uh, We are willing to negotiate with the Palestinians tomorrow. We're willing to do it today. I was with Prime Minister Netanyahu. I remember him once standing up and saying he's willing to go to Ramallah to talk to the Palestinians to negotiate. And uh, all the security people whose job it is to protect him, I saw them starting to sweat. They weren't very happy, but he was very serious. If the Palestinians would have accepted his, his uh, idea and invited him to Ramallah, he would have gone. I know he would have gone. The only way we're going to solve these issues between us and the Palestinians is through uh, direct talks. And, uh, and the Palestinians do themselves no favor by, by thinking if they go to the United Nations and get anti-Israel resolutions passed or going to the European Union and getting uh, statements that are very critical of Israel, it, they, they get pieces of paper, but they don't actually get change for their people. The only way they can get substantive and meaningful change for their people is, is through engagement with Israel, which is something, unfortunately, that they have consistently refused to do. Uh, they've actually done something which is very dangerous, and I'm, I'm surprised that it's been accepted in some quarters of the international community, is they've divorced the principle of Palestinian statehood from peace. In other words, they say, we want a Palestinian state now without peace. Uh, they want immediate recognition. And I'd say, what, 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 how can anyone ex- uh, think Palestinians will have a motivation in the future to make peace if they can get a state without it? So, so I think it's very important that the Palestinians are held accountable. We spoke about Rabin before. The whole peace process with the Palestinians was based on a letter that Arafat wrote Rabin, I believe it was in 1994, I could be wrong, it could have been 93, but there was this famous letter that Arafat wrote Rabin that allowed the Oslo process to go forward. And in that letter, Arafat made two core commitments to, to, to the Israeli side. He said, one, we will solve all outstanding issues through negotiations, and two, we totally renounce terrorism. Now, it's clear, looking in, in hindsight back at the Oslo process, that the Palestinians have failed to meet their two core commitments on which the whole process was, was built. Uh, on, on the issue of negotiation, they, 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 they refuse to engage and have done so consistently uh, over the last decade. And on the issue of terrorism, the, I'd like to be able to tell you the Palestinians have an unequivocal attitude, but on the contrary, uh, in English, they're condemning terrorism, and when they uh, fund it, yes, when they pay people to, to uh, after they've committed crimes, it's a serious, serious problem. Uh, uh, you know, winking the eye this way, never condemning, of course, Hamas when it fires rockets at Israeli citizens. So I think there needs to be, if the international community wants to be effective, one has to hold the Palestinian side to its own commitments and insist that they negotiate with Israel. Because by coming to the British Parliament and talking to their friends here and, and getting resolutions through the UN, they can do that. But they don't change anything. They don't do their people any benefit. You've answered the question. So, uh, so, so, so don't, uh, don't worry. Don't think that you haven't. You have. What role is there in this process still for UN Special Representative and perhaps for the Quartet, do you think? It, uh, it, it's not clear to me. Uh, how we move forward now. There's the American plan. Uh, We've accepted it as a basis for talks. The Arab states have welcomed it, uh, as did the British government, as did others. The Palestinians have sort of put themselves into a corner. And so uh, I I don't know how we get out of this. Uh, At the same time, in the framework of Palestinian rejectionism, we're having 
as you know, these discussions with the Americans uh, and with others about how can we uh, uh, move forward? Is it possible to create new realities in the framework of Palestinian intransigence, or do we all have to be just victim of the Palestinians' refusal to move? I mean, to one extent, if you say uh, we have to sit and do nothing until the Palestinians agree to talk to us, does that mean that we actually sit and do nothing? Is that a good policy option? I, I'm, I'm not sure. Mark, uh, you've been very generous with your uh, with your time and with your answers, and I'm particularly conscious that you're about to leave the United Kingdom. Your posting has come to an end, uh, and right at the very end, you've given CMEC this opportunity of a conversation, uh, which is much appreciated. As you look back on the uh, on the last few years and away from this particular issue, what what particularly will you be proud of in terms of the relationship between Israel and the United Kingdom in the last few years? I'd like to point to three events, with your permission, that stand out. Number one, I was at RAF Waddington uh, uh, last year to see a bunch of Israeli Air Force pilots uh, train with their British counterparts. Now, a lot of the very important security cooperation, defense cooperation between Israel and the United Kingdom, we don't talk about for obvious reasons. And you know this better than most because you've been in government. But this was a joint exercise and it was public, so we can talk about it. Now, my Israeli Air Force pilots are good and they know they're good. Even some Israelis would say they can be cocky. But they were very happy to be here in Britain and to train with the RAF because they have a professional respect for the RAF. And when we train together and we learn from each other, our pilots become better. And that means our air forces are better, which means our countries are better defended. And I use that as an example of this new level of security and defense cooperation between the United Kingdom of Israel, which I'm very proud to say that in the years that I've been here, uh, we've seen an energi- uh, that process energized. And today our, our national security uh, agencies, our, our defense uh, mechanisms, we are working together much more closer than ever before. That's one. Two, I think the centenary of the Balfour uh, uh, Declaration. We had it in November 2017, 100 years to that famous British document. And I know, and let's be frank, there was pressure on the British side not to do anything. I think the Palestinians even called, the Palestinian leadership called on Britain to apologize for Balfour. And uh, I think some people in Whitehall said, well, let's just play it down. Let's not make an issue. And in the end, of course, we had a wonderful celebration. Prime Minister Netanyahu came to, uh, to London as the guest of Prime Minister May. We had this wonderful event uh, where both, the, uh, both Prime Ministers was there and prom- then Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson was there as well. And, and, and uh, both Prime Ministers spoke and it was a wonderful celebration of what was a crucial, important event in history. And we in Israel will always remember Britain's vital contribution in in the role to Israeli independence. It's true. We both know the mandate ended with a certain different feeling. We can go into that if you want. But but but, but basically, we, we always remember that at a crucial time in history, Israel stood up for the right of people to, of the, the right of the Jewish people to national self-determination in their, in their historic homeland. And the third point, I'll say very quickly, was the royal visit. In 2018, uh, uh, Prince William uh, became the first British, uh, senior British royal to make a, an official visit to the State of Israel. Uh, since then, we've had another because at the beginning of this year, uh, uh, Prince Charles came to Jerusalem as well. Uh, 
for many, many years, people in Israel uh, didn't understand why the royal family could not come uh, to Israel. For all sorts of reasons, uh, uh, it was not considered the right thing to do. And Israelis would get frustrated because we'd see the royal family visit uh, our neighbors. Maybe it's easier to visit some of our neighbors because some of them are monarchies, yes. But uh, uh, it was almost some people in Israel felt that there was an unofficial boycott. And I think when Prince William came in 2018, first of all, it was a great visit. Yes, Israelis got very excited because ultimately we haven't had kings of Israel since biblical time. And when a, 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 the future king of Britain came to, came to Israel, it was actually generally very exciting for people. But, but it also symbolized this new place where Israel-UK relations are. And I know that you had something to do with that. And I say thank you, uh, Alistair, for your part in that. But what, what I'm trying to say is those, that final visit, I think that, that, that demonstrated, that was symbolic, but it demonstrated what is ultimately a very strong, robust, uh, and increasingly important bilateral partnership between our two countries. Uh, Mark Regev, thank you very much uh, for finishing on such a note to emphasize that there is uh, a lot in uh, international life and relationships between states beyond the difficulties of conflicts. Um, and uh, it, it's uh, appreciated the way that you've put this. Uh, your friends will wish you well on your return to Israel. We know that you will remain, I'm sure, closely engaged with trying to resolve these issues. Just a final one, Mark. Are you, are you an optimist about the Middle East peace process? Do you think that at some stage you will be able to, to say um, it, it's done and there is a comfortable relationship between us and all our neighbours? I'm going to answer your question uh, uh, this way, by saying I'm, a, I'm an optimist, a very strong, passionate optimist about the future of Israel. And that's for two reasons. One, political. I think our new relations with the Arab world are revolutionary. I think we're going to continue to see this rapprochement between Israel and the Arab states, that Israel is more and more considered a legitimate part of the region. And that will, as I say, I'm, I'm convinced that will continue. And that gives me hope for a, a more peaceful and stable region with Israel being accepted and integrated into the region. Ultimately, I think that the Palestinians will have to join the wagon, you know, get on the bus as well because they can't be left behind. And, and, and on the economic side, I mean, Israel is increasingly prosperous. During the time I've been here, according to World Bank numbers, Israel passed the UK in GDP per capita. I mean, as you know, we're a, we're, we're a smaller country than the UK. We're only 9 million people, yes, yeah? so our economy is much smaller. But per capita, Israelis are now more prosperous, just slightly, no, but just by a little bit, but we are. And, and, and uh, that's because Israel's become this epicenter for innovation, for technology, uh, for science, uh, for conceptual products. And, and in the 21st century, these are the things that count. And so I, 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 I believe Israel will become an in increasingly important global player in the, in the economy, in the world economy. And, and so if I think the politics is moving in the right direction and ultimately the, the, the economics is moving in the right direction, I'm extremely positive and optimistic about Israel's future. Mark, thank you very much for your uh, time in the United Kingdom representing the State of Israel, uh, the personal friendship that we have, as I have with Hussam Zamlot and uh, other ambassadors in the area. Wish you very well going back and thank you for spending some of your last few hours in the United Kingdom uh, with CMEC uh, and that's much appreciated. All the best and thank you to all. It's my pleasure. Thank you to all who have been listening through this particular podcast. Thank you very much.